Hello, welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm Jonathan Carl, ABC News Chief White House Correspondent. And I'm Rick Klein, Political Director at ABC News. Matthew Dowd, Political Analyst at ABC News. We're coming to you Friday morning, uh, right after the news of Prince's death. And that music you're hearing in the background, that is none other than Prince when he performed at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. While My Guitar Gently Weeps, the, 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 the pop star blowing away the rock and roll legends on the stage at the game of playing lead rock and roll guitar. Incredible, and it figured, you know, why not, Rick, right? A little Prince to get us into this week in politics? We are all purple today. We hear about the red America and the blue America, but let's be purple in honor of Prince, the rock legend, with a lot going on uh, on both sides of the race. A big week in New York, the hometown of both Donald Trump, uh, and Hillary Clinton coming down, coming through. Maybe Sinatra is appropriate for what uh, the kind of boost that both of them got, John. Uh, you know, this was uh, in many ways a game-changing New York primary in that uh, we went in with, uh, with momentum for both Bernie Sanders and Ted Cruz, and we came out with Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump looking more like inevitable uh, nominees than they have uh, at any point during this process. And Matthew, d- d- does it change the math in your estimation? We know for Hillary Clinton, she's on the march. Uh, she's going to have a hard time clinching before the end of this process. We know for Donald Trump, 1237, that magic number looming large. D- does New York change anything substantially about the likelihood of clinching? I-, I actually think it does change the math a little. And as John John said, it changes the momentum a lot. I mean, I think right now Bernie Sanders and Ted Cruz are on their heels I think that size of the victories is what wasn't the fact of the victories. It was the size of the Clinton victory and the Trump victory that I think really puts them on a path that they are highly likely uh, to be the nominees of their both of their parties in the course of this. And it also sets them up well for next Tuesday, where they look like they're both going to do well in the course of that. So I think the New York primary was a turning point in this race. And, and it, it sure, you know, uh, looks like Trump, even though we on this very podcast uh, have been talking about how difficult it would be to him for him to clinch before the convention. Uh, you know, after a, a nearly a clean sweep in New York and looking at the way the calendar looks uh, for for the primaries in the uh, uh, on Tuesday, this upcoming Tuesday, uh, he looks like he's got a, a very good chance, uh, still a steep climb, but a very good chance of actually getting the delegates he'll need to, to clinch. It's so interesting with Donald Trump because he had this soaring moment in New York. It was happening at the same time that his campaign was essentially in chaos, at remaking itself. Uh, they're getting their clock cleaned in the delegate selection level. Uh, they're bringing in a, a new man in Paul Manafort to essentially take over the operations of the campaign. Uh, we'll talk about this a little bit later in the podcast with our uh, one of our reporters covering Donald Trump, but a lot of different moving pieces. But John, the, the, the possibility here, the probability that he comes within striking distance, that he is uh, somewhere near the magic number of 1237, but not quite there, close enough maybe to get past the finish line. That first ballot, Matt Dow, do you think that is Donald Trump's one and maybe only chance to win the nomination, that once those delegates are freed, his number goes down? Yeah, I think Donald Trump's high watermark will be the first ballot. That'll be his high watermark. So he needs to hit 1237. Uh, at that first ballot. Otherwise, I think voters start peeling away, as we've talked about before. They be, Many become unpledged, and I don't think they're going to stay with Donald Trump. Many of them are going to not stay with Donald Trump. So I don't think Donald Trump hits 1237 on June 7th, which is the California, New Jersey, and other primaries. I think he hits somewhere in the 1100s on, on that day. And then 
I think he has a very good shot at picking up enough between the last primary and the convention to get himself to 1237. I actually think the New York primary changed this from an 80% chance of a contested convention to at best a 50-50% chance of a contested convention. And, and as this is happening, I, I wanted to bring up a couple of other uh, headlines here that, that caught my eye this week. One is coming out of this incredible victory that Trump's had in New York. There's a story in the Washington Post about uh, Kasich and Cruz actually beginning the VP vetting process. Uh, the campaigns are at least talking about uh, uh, beginning the process of choosing their running mates, uh, which seems uh, particularly interesting given that both of them are now mathematically eliminated <laughs> from, from clinching the nomination. It, 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 interesting. I guess that's right. So, I, you know, I, I'm vetting both of you for my- for my ticket too. Does that count? Do we do we get a headline out of that? Uh, you know, I think that's a it's a savvy thing to get out there if you're Ted Cruz or John Kasich. The fact is, you you really don't get to name a running mate unless you're going to be the nominee. Uh, it's it's convenient to to put it out there, but I think this is a signal to their supporters to hey, buck up, we're in this for the long haul. I, I'm curious about the timing here, though. I mean, whether it's Trump or someone else, how. Do you, can you even name a running mate unless you have the nomination sewn away? I mean, we've seen people try it. Ronald Reagan tried it very famously in 76, name a running mate before the convention. But can you do it or do you want to keep maximum flexibility and keep that card in your back pocket because you don't know how you're going to need to play it once you get to the convention floor in Cleveland? Well, you know, I mean, you could see a situation where uh, Trump, who, you know, it looks like he's going to be short of 1237, is not going to be able to clinch it. Uh, with the uh, the handful of of unpledged delegates he has going into the convention, and turns to you know Marco Rubio or John Kasich or somebody who's got a you know a few delegates to play with, to to uh, to, to push him over the top, um, but I, I I do come back to the process here, which is, you know we, we we've seen these these vice presidential uh, running mate you know the whole Veep stakes uh, process, it, it, it takes weeks of, of vetting, there are interviews with the candidates, uh, the candidates are asked to fill out extensive questionnaires, turn over years and years of tax returns, uh, the, it's done all in high, high secrecy. But I mean, can, can, you, can you do any of that stuff if, if nobody is actually clinched? I well, mean, do you I, even <laughs> agree to it? Do the potential candidates agree to this extensive process when they're being asked to do so? by a candidate who is not necessarily going to be the uh, the nominee? Well, John, I think the answer, the short answer to that is no. They don't agree to this. And the second thing is, is yeah, it's interesting, but it's also delusional. I mean, the idea that John Kasich and But, but I'm Cruz, also asking about Trump. I mean, I'm also asking about Trump. Well, I think, I think the yeah. Trump, I, I think it makes much more sense for Trump to sort of begin to start sort of saying that I'm going to look into this and I'm going to start talking to people. And I think it makes sense for that. I think that you're right, the vetting process of this. The other fact of this is the VP choice is always a choice that provides momentum in and coming out of a convention. And do you really want to have something that's done in June and then your convention, let's say Trump is going to get on the first ballot, he loses, he loses any ability to sort of have a charge fundamentally by this choice. So Anytime this has been done in the past where somebody picked it first, I can't think of a time where it actually helped to do it before a convention. 
And, and we're going to get into a lot of this later in the podcast, particularly the changes in the Trump campaign. But right now we are joined live from Florida by Henry Barber, a Republican National Committeeman from Mississippi, who's also a member of the Rules Committee. Henry, thanks for being here. Good morning. So give us the lay of the land. You've been meeting down there with your colleagues on the Rules Committee for the last couple of days. Uh, all of a sudden, people are really interested in what you guys you guys are up to. There were a bunch of proposed changes, some of which would have made it a lot easier for the white knight, an outside candidate, to get involved. But but so far, you guys have done essentially nothing to change the rules. Is that right? And what's the thinking behind that? Well, the, yeah, the Rules Committee did meet yesterday, and there was one proposal, actually, to change from the House rules, uh, operating under the House rules on the convention floor to Robert's Rules of Orders. And the Rules Committee had a consensus that we don't need to change rules at this point. We've got the Convention Rules Committee that's going to meet right before the convention. They're the people who are specifically empowered by the grassroots and the voters to deal with this. And we just felt like it wouldn't be improper for us to fiddle with that at this point. So we, we punted to, the, to these guys who will be in Cleveland. So, so in the in the punting, and you're, as you say, it'll be a different rules committee um, that you may be a part of. Um, you don't know that yet, right? That's correct. So, a different rules committee in in a, in a couple of months in in Cleveland. Am I wrong to assume that be, Ted Cruz and Donald Trump have the lion's share of the delegates going in be, between the two of them? I don't know something. I don't know. I don't know the numbers. Seventy five, eighty percent of the delegates, something like that. Does that give them the kind of edge that I would assume it does to blo- to, to to keep the current rules intact and current and block almost anyone else on the planet from having their name put into nomination? Getting your name put into nomination, only the only difference it does for you is that you get to have somebody make a nominating speech and, and a seconding speech. Unbound delegates can vote for whoever they want to vote for. I mean, look, people voted for Ron Paul last time. There are people right now who are bound to vote for Rubio. He's not going to meet that Rule 40B criteria that you have a majority of delegates in eight states, but people can still vote. People can can still vote for him, and in fact, are, will be bound to still vote for him. So, Rule Forty B is window dressing. Henry, are you bound? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. First ballot. First ballot in Mississippi. Okay, so so, so you're bound to Trump in the first ballot. Well, I, it, it, we have our state convention on May 14th, and it, and it, all Mississippi delegates, 40 of us, will be either be bound for Trump or Cruz. So, at this point, um, I don't know if I'll be a Trump delegate or a Cruz delegate. That's something that will get decided at the state convention. And if you had decided what you do on the second ballot? I am uh, undecided, genuinely so. Really? Yes. Really undecided between between Trump and Cruz or, or potentially undecided. somebody else? Undecided, yeah. Undecided, totally. So yeah. w- w- what's going on down there? I mean, th- this isn't a, a, a meeting uh, of Republicans, a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, people that will be delegates at the convention. Are you... Are you being lobbied by the campaigns? Are you being wooed by the campaigns? What's what's happening outside of the, the, the formal meetings? Well, certainly this is the largest gathering of delegates before Cleveland. There are you know, 168 members of the RNC, and you know, we're, for the, the vast majority of them are here in one place. So it was an opportunity for the candidates as well as their campaigns to come down and, and visit with people and a little bit of a dry run on, on how it might work if it is indeed an open convention, and I think is... Um, there's a, I think, a majority chance that, that that's what happens. Um, so let, let me get, nail that down a little bit. What do you think? Uh, more than 50 percent? How, how, how much of a chance? Where do you, where do you put it? Yeah, I, 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 well, I look, I think it's about a 60 percent chance that, that Donald Trump's going to be our nominee. But I only think it's probably a 30 to 40 percent chance that he gets 1237 by June 7. 
um, that will get. And let's just say he gets to eleven fifty or what? You know, pick a number twelve hundred. Um, he'll have six weeks to try to persuade delegates to come his way. And this, what happened, it's happening here in Florida. It's the start of that. You know, um, the Trump people, the Cruz people, Kasich people are down here talking to people who are going to be delegates, and they're making their pitch. And, and there are a lot of people here who are undecided. Uh, and I think all the candidates helped themselves. Uh, Trump uh, personally did not come, but he had a lot of his folks here, and they're still here working the room. A lot of sidebar conversations. That's where the action is here. That's where the action will be in Cleveland. Who was there on the, on the Trump side? Who were you talking to? Well, Manafort was here, and uh, Rick Wiley, and Ed Brookover, and, you know, several others, uh, to be honest, I couldn't keep them all straight. We've seen the quotes uh, from Manafort in particular promising a different candidate uh, in the uh, in going forward, that was saying it's a part that can be played. It reminded a lot of folks of the Etch-A-Sketch moment in, in 2012. What's your take on that? I mean, is that a compelling argument that, you know, forget the Donald Trump you've seen so far. We're talking about the guy that can change himself over? It's, it's, it's problematic. I, 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 at times he's incoherent, and, and that, that's, that's a real problem. Um, and I think that's an advantage for Cruz uh, because everybody knows where Cruz stands. We know he's we know he's the guy's a Republican. We know he's a conservative. Um, but there is this, uh, you know, Trump is really tapped into voters who are dissatisfied with the status quo and and are really concerned about the country. And they're like, you know what? We need somebody that's bold, who's going to be strong. And so people perceive him that way. Whether he really is that way, I, I haven't a clue. Having a clue. And is there anything the campaign team is doing or saying that suggests to you that they're getting their act together for a second ballot, that, they, that, they're, that they're working the kind of rooms that you need to work to, to assure not just delegates that are, are pledged to you, that are bound to you, but that are actually your people in the room in Cleveland? Yeah. Well, I, and I think that for Trump, this is a first ballot deal. Um, I think if he doesn't win on the first ballot, I, I think that it's very likely – on the second ballot, that nobody wins, and then I think Cruz would probably win on a third ballot. But the Trump people are trying. It, that's very plain, uh, and and talking to their folks. Um, but they got a ways to go, and and um, uh, so we'll we'll see. But he certainly has to grow as a candidate. He has to begin to show that he can bring the Republicans together. He needs to do that on the issues, and he needs to get out and talk about um, why Hillary would be wrong for the country. Hillary's a great way to bring Republicans together. Henry, when you look at what's going on right now inside the Republican Party, what's the what's the mood in the room among people that have been to a bunch of these meetings before, been to a conventions before? Are you guys worried? Are you freaked out? There's been talk about scaling back ambitions for Senate races and redirecting resources and maybe giving up on the top of the ticket. Is this permeating your conversations? Like, what the heck is going on in this party? Well, no. I wouldn't say that. I think there, there certainly um, there is concern about the whole ticket uh, and down ticket, and but I, people are not panicked. But the candidates, our, our presidential candidates, have got to grow. I see signs that Cruz is doing that. I see moments where Trump is, and you know they they both have got to show that they can bring the party together. And I think the one that does the best job of that will have the best opportunity. Uh, to win in Cleveland. And do you see any scenario that, that somebody else uh, comes in? That So, you, so you, you, you outline a scenario where 
If Trump doesn't win on the first ballot, his support goes down. Cruz has come up. Uh, but, but uh, you know, if, if we start deadlocking ballot after ballot, uh, do did, did you see a scenario where another candidate other than those two wins this thing? Well, technically, it could certainly happen. I mean, and the rules allow it. I mean, people can vote for whomever they want. But um, I think it's unlikely. I think that's a 1%, 2%, 3% sort of scenario that, that that happens. I think Ted Cruz is doing a really good job on the delegate selection process. That's going to make him much stronger. I will say I think sometimes – People who are reported as cruise folks are people who are really more so longtime party people who probably are open to cruise, but not necessarily committed to cruise. And so I think there's a risk that those sorts of people on the second ballot said, you know, I might vote for Kasich or I might vote for somebody else. But I really do believe that it's Trump or cruise. And do you think that the that the any of these disputes over delegations, um, any of these disputes over the rules, do any of these really matter? Is this is it is is this ultimately going to matter uh, in the battle for twelve thirty seven? The kind of the little fights we're seeing break out in the Virgin Islands, um, the, the the arguments over which delegates can be which delegates in places like Arizona. Does any of that going to matter? It matters. It matters a lot. I, I I will say though that that happens every four years. There are battles. There are contests over, you know, in a state like Louisiana or Maine last time where you had two sides claiming that they were the real delegates. And so the contest committee had to deal with that. So that in a race where Donald Trump could 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 be on June 7 sitting at, say, 1,200 delegates. So, yeah, it matters a lot, you know, who are the delegates going to be because if he's if he's 50 delegates short or whatever number, you know, he's got a few pots he can fish in. And that first ballot, there's about 200 unbound delegates on that first ballot from states like Pennsylvania or West Virginia or Colorado, North Dakota, uh, Guam. Or otherwise, if he can't get them from there, he's got to either find uh, Rubio delegates who become unbound and they become released, which is a possibility, or or he's got to go convince Kasich to uh, play ball. Henry, how, how much does the power of the electability argument come into play post-first ballot, assuming Trump doesn't get 1237, sort of Kasich's argument that we need to win a general election and these two can't win a general election? How much, is, how much weight does that have post-first ballot? It's, it's significant. I, 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 you know, typically in a primary where you've got the general Republican electorate voting, it's really more about ideology. Um, but when you get 2,472 delegates from around the country who are really involved in a party, they really want to win. You know, most of these people got involved in politics to affect public policy. And if you want to affect public policy, you realize you've got to win the general election. It doesn't do any good just to nominate somebody who you agree with on everything. They've got to be able to win. And that will be a very serious question if you get to third or fourth or fifth ballot. Um, like I say, I think fourth, fifth ballot is highly unlikely, but it could happen. I mean, you know, the John Kasich thing could happen, um, I, but I think it's very unlikely. But electability would be, you know, his biggest argument probably, and and obviously experience. And, and Henry, you, you and Matthew have both said the same thing here on the podcast, which is, you know, a, a, a lot of people are saying, which is if Trump's going to win, he's going to have to win on that first ballot. In your conversations with uh, people like Paul Manafort and Rick Wiley and the you know the the Trump folks that are down there, do they get that? Do they understand that? Uh, their emphasis sure seems to be on getting over twelve thirty seven as their. Oh, they you know, get it. Yeah, they're not. Stupid. They get it. 
they they look they know what's going on. They see what's going on. And it, look, the only there are only two groups of people who are really working the delegate selection process effectively: the Cruz campaign and people who are running for county chairman of the Republican Party or trying to get reelected to the RNC or on the state executive committee of these various state parties. And you know, so that's your sort of longtime party people. So it's them and the Cruz folks, the Trump people. Um, uh, you know, there there's like a lot of noise, but I, I I'm not seeing a, an effective effort. Now that may change, um, but this is a, this is not the sort of thing that you can press a button and buy TV ads. This is, I mean, in you know a lot of states, including Mississippi tomorrow, we'll have people showing up at their precincts at 10 in the morning to vote for a delegate to the county convention. And most people are like, what the crowd are you talking about? I don't even know what that is. <laughs> it's crazy. It's a crazy system is what it is that we never care about until this. Finally, Henry, do you think, what do you make of the Veep Stakes talk? Do you think there's any chance that these candidates try to name vice presidential running mates before they get to Cleveland? Do you think this is one of those things you, you save it and, and you play that card when you know what the lay of the land looks like in well, Cleveland? Normally, the VP pick has to do with the general election. This time it'll have to do with the primary. You know, so you think I, they're going to pick based on the strategy of getting to twelve thirty-seven? Got to be. I mean, look, if you can't get to twelve thirty-seven, you're done. So, what cards can you play to help yourself with these final states, perhaps, or in Cleveland? And so, it's it's going to be all about who can help you best to get to twelve thirty-seven. But does that mean it's a decision that's done at the convention on day two or day three when you're you're going through the ballots and you you're you're negotiating kind of like you know the way the way Reagan tried to reach out uh, uh, to Ford? Uh, is it is it one of those uh, scenarios? And and if so, I mean, could could we see a situation where for the first time in in you know in a long time we have a running mate chosen who has not gone through that formal legalistic, extensive uh, uh, vetting process? I, I think that um, there will be serious vetting going on. It, is it as good as what the Mitt Romney folks did? Probably not. You know, they were pretty thorough. Um, but I, I do think there is a real possibility that these decisions could be made in Cleveland at 2 in the morning. Um <laughs> And but I, I I have to believe and want to believe that these campaigns will be prepared. They will have their serious notebooks with all the facts and figures as best they can get them, and they will have had discussions. Um, but it, look, this decision is going to be uh, if you're any of these potential nominees. How do I get to twelve thirty seven? How do I get to twelve thirty seven? You don't get to twelve thirty seven. You know, you know, you can go on to Disney World or wherever. <laughs> right. Well, uh, Henry Barber, uh, Republican National Committee down there in Florida, thank you very much for joining us. You bet, guys. Thanks. And, and Matthew, I know you've got to head out, but, but let, let me uh, ask you on this, on this whole question of uh, the VP selection, which I'm, I think is, is fascinating. Uh, if you're Donald Trump and you set up a, a mechanism for vetting your vice presidential running mate, what does that look like? I mean, could you imagine <laughs> Donald Trump himself going through a vetting process for, by somebody else? I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean the, the whole point is to look for potential skeletons, controversial things that have been said, controversial things in their background. I mean, uh, how if you're Donald Trump, how do you vet somebody? 
Well, uh, first of all, Donald Trump would never submit to a vet because he wouldn't want to turn over all of the stuff and he thinks he's above it all. So he would never even submit to a vet. I think there's we have no just like we have no what exactly vision of what a Donald Trump presidency would look like or a cabinet would look like. I have no sense of what a Donald Trump vetting process would look like in the course of this. I mean, uh, Manafort, Paul Manafort, I think, would probably put some discipline into it. But I actually think the Trump folks are nowhere even close to doing this. I think they see only downside to doing that right now as opposed to any upside. I get the Cruz, you know, potential upside even before June 7th to start this process. But there's no upside to Donald Trump doing this. Okay, Matthew, uh, we're going to let you go. Before you do, I'm going to put you on the spot. Three names that will be on the shortlist for Donald Trump. To be on Donald Trump's shortlist for VP? Yes. I think the top name is uh, Governor Martinez of New Mexico. If I were them, that's, I mean, I wouldn't even have three names. I would have that as the name and convince her to do it. She solves a lot of his problems. Even though She's she just governor. slammed him. She just slammed him at a, at a, at a Coke meeting, of, according to the Washington Post the other day. I think, as you know, all of those things get talked about and says that's, you know, he's he's matured, whatever she has to say. But I would spend a serious amount of time right now lobbying her and trying to build a relationship. She's the one he needs. All right. I, I, you said it was one name. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you I'm going to let you off on that. That way we can hold you to it if it doesn't happen. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks, all right. guys. All right. Matthew, Dad, thank you very much. So, uh, Rick, I, I'd like to see if we can go to the heart of the Trump campaign right now, because you, you mentioned at the top of the program this uh, effort by the Trump team to professionalize the campaign, talking about a new Donald Trump, the, the speech that Paul Manafort gave uh, behind closed doors, uh, you know, the top Republicans talking about how we're going to see a, a new Trump, one that is more disciplined, one that is more on message, uh, one that does not, uh, you know, cause a, a, a new controversy every day. So let's turn to Candace Smith, who is with ABC News, our colleague who's been spending a lot of time uh, traveling uh, with the Trump campaign and covering the Trump campaign, the ins and outs. So, so we're, we're reading a lot about the changes. We're seeing what Paul Manafort has said. But you have been out there. You've been with uh, a Trump on, on, on the road. What's your sense? Are you seeing a new Donald Trump on the campaign trail? Well, I think this narrative of that there are two Donald Trumps, you know, we should be sort of measured in that, right? Because then there's there's the Donald Trump that appeared at the New York primary speech, right, where he referred to Cruz as Senator Ted Cruz and Governor John Kasich. And then the very next day, he was right back to calling him Lion Ted and talking about crooked Hillary Clinton. So if there are two Donald Trumps, we haven't seen the old Trump go away at all. Even last night, he, you know, was just as bombastic as he normally is. Um, but I think where we're starting to see changes is, as you said, sort of in the campaign. Um, we've heard Paul Manafort talking about the different um, staffers that he's bringing on. We've already sort of seen that materialize. Uh, campaign manager, still technically a name only, uh, Corey Lewandowski used to prowl the, the press area and go out during speeches, and we haven't seen that. Hope Hicks, his former uh, spokeswoman, also has been noticeably uh, not present um, as or as visible during these rallies. So we're starting to see position shift. Manafort's bringing lots of people in. This is definitely a campaign that's changing, even if the candidate is not. Candace, uh, the, the, you talk about the, the structure and the changing structure. What What is it like just at these events right now? Corey Lewandowski, as you said, he's he's working the, the press area along with the, the spokesperson, even though and, and he's getting peppered with questions about how long he's going to be in the job. Is it a sense that he's like lobbying for his job with members of the press corps? No. Th- so, so 
Lewandowski hasn't been out as much as he used to. This used to be a very typical thing. You used to everywhere you go, you would see Lewandowski, and you haven't. Um, so you do get the sense that his duties are changing. You know, we've heard from multiple sources that now, and even he said that he's going to be overseeing day-to-day operations, which sort of makes him like a glorified advanced man almost. He's still going to be traveling with Trump as far as we know. Uh, but the inner circle, this, you have to realize the campaign was so centralized, as you both very well know. It was just Lewandowski, Michael Glasner, Hope Hicks, and this inner circle. And now that Paul Manafort has come in, um, you're seeing that completely expelled. Uh, now there's all these new guys. There's Brooke Wiley, as you guys mentioned before. There's Paul. There's Brooke Gates. There's um, Brooke Overberry. You have all these other people that are now coming into this orbit. Um, and we're really seeing Lewandowski's position really deteriorate. Um, really deteriorate. And we're also seeing less of Trump in terms of... Uh... You know the the, uh, the the constant parade of of, of interviews of, of uh, press gaggles, uh, election night press conferences. Uh, he's he's significantly scaled back the way he's interacting with people like like you and me. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean that New York uh, victory night speech. Uh, he spoke for you know less than ten minutes. Didn't take any questions. He hasn't done uh, the Sunday shows in two weeks. Seems like he's not going to do them again this week. It definitely is a concerted area uh, effort to make this guy who's been so oversaturated in the media to really pull him back. I mean, this week he did the Today Show Town Hall. He appeared on Fox News. Really not that much else. Um, and so it seems like the, the, the thinking is that the less maybe, you know, we pull this back for a guy who was everywhere, who was seen on all outlets and networks and papers, maybe we should pull this back a little bit, as Manafort says, to try and show um, the changes that are about to be wrought in this candidate. And and, and with the man himself, uh, the, the idea that he would change or can change has been something he has talked about himself. He has been not shy at all about telegraphing to people that he is capable of changing. But it seems to me that he is, every time he says that, you get flashes again of what he used to be, as you mentioned, going back to the Lion Ted stuff. Do you do you get a sense from people that there is a pivot point that you are going to see Trump 2.0? Because we, I feel like every time we talk about it, we're back to the old Trump. Right. Uh, there, so, someone tweeted this great thing that do we can we have a countdown clock to when Donald Trump's going to be more presidential? <laughs> It'll work on cable. We'll do it. <laughs> yeah. Like you said, I mean, he's been he's he's been telegraphing this. You're, I mean, even last night he does this often. You know, folks, you're going to see me. I'm going to be so presidential. You're going to be bored. And we don't know when that time is coming. We thought that it was going to be after APEC. We thought it was going to be after New York. Um, maybe after the convention, one would think. But then he also telegraphed how he's going to hit Hillary so hard. Um, so, I, I, you know, what Manafort, I think, was alluding to and what he said was that, you know, Donald Trump has this public persona that he parades when he's in front of his crowds, his people, as he calls them. But then in the back rooms and meeting with delegates and these private meetings where I would imagine you're really going to that's where Donald Trump is going to change. No more of the fiery rhetoric, the bombast. I think you're going to see him telling, you know, these delegates that even though he said that he's not going to be wooing, we all know that the whole point of bringing on a convention team, you know, showing that he can be presidential, showing that, you know, there's some wiggle room and maybe some of his more inflammatory and controversial policies. And there was a story uh, today in the Times of London about how Prime Minister Cameron uh, is is uh, beginning a process of trying to reach out to Trump. This is interesting because Cameron, as, as you guys may remember, had called Trump divisive, stupid, and wrong. Uh, that was before. But other than that, a good guy, right? Yeah, exactly. yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and now the Times of London has a story that through 
uh, the British ambassador to Washington, that there's been an outreach effort uh, to, uh, to, to Trump's foreign policy team, seeing this as a top priority to smooth things over, uh, obviously looking <laughs> for the possibility that, uh, uh, the real possibility that Trump will be the Republican nominee. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely an inevitability uh, that I think people are feeling here. And, and the Trump campaign knows it. You know, he's outlined, he's, he's telegraphed that he's going to be having a series of speeches. There's a uh, foreign policy speech that's going to be next week. Um, so we'll see how that goes. But, yeah, I think that this is a guy who's going to appear in some settings to be more, I hate to use this word again, but presidential to, to seem to have policies, to seem to have well thought out ideas. But I don't think that we're going to see the Donald Trump that we're used to change out on the stump. I think in his rallies, when he's surrounded by his people, uh, I think it's still going to be the same old Donald. And sometimes we see the two Donald Trumps in one speech, in one <laughs> paragraph, in one sentence yeah. even. In one, in, in one sentence. I mean, I, th I think last night was a funny moment as he was talking about Hillary Clinton. He started off by saying, you know, she's qualified. That doesn't mean she's good. And then literally moments later, he said, well, Bernie Sanders says she's not qualified, so I'm going to say she's not qualified. So sort of this <laughs> dichotomy that, that even goes on, you know, in, like you said, in one paragraph. Maybe ultimately, Rick, this is the perfect formula for a presidential candidate. You can take multiple positions at the same time. You know, the risk is you end up offending everybody, as he did when he uh, uh, brought up the issue of, of, of abortion. But uh, but on the other hand, maybe you can find a way to please everybody. But well, here's the thing. Same he, time. You, you could get criticized for two Donald Trumps. He's the guy who said there are two Donald Trumps. He's the guy who says, I am capable of changing. You'll see me change so fast. He says it himself. It's the same thing when, you know, when he was asked about his taxes and, and he says, well, I don't know what I paid, but I paid as little as possible. You, know, you just lean in on this stuff. He, he talk about the skeletons in closets. He wrote about the skeletons in his books. And so just airing all of that stuff out there is in a way disarming. And we've seen it work with him like no one else. Unbelievable. All right. Well, Candace, out on the campaign trail. And let me, you're in Delaware right now, right? I am in Pennsylvania driving to Delaware. So close. Pennsylvania driving. Well, I, I hope you're not actually behind the wheel, are you? No, I, I stopped for you guys. I can oh, that's it. wonderful oh, to hear. That's the right good, answer good, for a couple for, for a boss to hear. You want <laughs> you want to know you. that? Kid. <laughs> we can get us in a lot of trouble, Candace. Thanks for you guys. All right, thanks for joining us. Okay. So, Rick, here we go. We uh, we're you know back up. We got another whole round of of, of primaries. We're starting to get to the point where we're going to run out of states. <laughs> well, that, that, that's actually a problem for, for people like John Kasich. We keep saying, look to the next one, look to the next one. Yeah, you're running out of states. And it, what's interesting about the geography, and we've talked before, I think, on this program and elsewhere about the difference between momentum and simple demographics in states, that you have this Acela primary coming up, right? All of these states, Maryland, uh, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Rhode Island, Connecticut – this is Trump territory. This is the Northeast. At the same time, you have Ted Cruz now trying to go hard right once again, uh, talking and mocking Donald Trump uh, for his comments about transgendered individuals being allowed to use any bathroom that they would like at Trump Tower. That it, it, I, I don't know that it works at this moment. And we're going to see Donald Trump go on a winning streak. And at the same time that he's just racing against himself in this number of 1237, he is going to be, in all likelihood, picking up large number of delegates over the ensuing contest. And there's just less real estate for Ted Cruz or anyone else to try to catch up. Uh, there, there sure is. And, and we're, you know, we expect the big uh, wins here on Tuesday. And then, you know, we'll be off to Indiana, which is a state that could be very tough for Trump. 
I think that we're going to be basically at the edge of our uh, seats right up until December 7th and, and then quite possibly after December. that. Dece- well, well, yes, December? Wow, it's a recount. You, just, know. you heard it here first. John Carl yes, says recount. All the, way, all the way to December 7th, which, of course, is Pearl Harbor Day. <laughs> oh. I mean, that's the thing. Um, either that or June 7th. One, one, one or the other. But, one of those but, days will live in infamy. Yes. <laughs> one of those dates will live in infamy. infamy. Yes, yes. Thank you very much. I appreciate that, uh, uh, Rick. Anyway, I think that's all we have uh, for the Powerhouse Politics podcast. Uh, Rick, do you mind if we go out uh, with a little bit more of that Prince guitar solo from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I would never mind. Let's listen to a little bit more of that solo. While my guitar gently weeps, Prince. Prince.